It wasn't, actually. Were you yelling at your wife? No, I wasn't yelling at my wife or my kids or any of them. It just happens to be I had a cold this week. I've been fighting it. And so uh, it works its way down into my throat, and I'm losing my voice. So stick in there and hang with me, okay? Uh, Nehemiah chapter 5. Nehemiah chapter 5. I was reading an article this week. It was, it was pretty funny. It said the, the second largest industry in Nigeria is the con artist who emailed gullible Americans <laughs> promising to send them millions of dollars if they'll just send them their bank account numbers. And uh, evidently it's worked because a lot of them have gone into that business. So uh, I was sitting, really, like, uh, I don't know if y'all saw that video that was out. There was a con artist from India that called, and it actually happened to be a police officer. And they, he was saying, like, if you don't give me your information, then I'm going to turn you in and you're going to be arrested. Well, the video shows that she's in the actual police station. She's a police officer, and she says, oh, really, who are you going to report me to? And said, well, I'm, talk, I'm in contact with Sergeant such and such in such and such location. And he says, oh, really? Uh, what's his phone number? And starts just going back at it. And the guy just finally gives up and says, okay, click, and hangs up. Couldn't get away with it. You know, con artists, they abound in this world, not just in the financial realm, but also in the spiritual realm. The Bible says that Satan is the master deceiver. John chapter 8 Verse 44 says that he's a liar and the father of all lies. The Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians that we shouldn't be ignorant of his devices, of his schemes. And as believers, we have to be aware of what God would want to do in our lives, spiritually speaking. The Bible says that Satan's strategy is to discourage the believer. That's what we looked at last week. We noticed the fact that because Satan had tried to attempt the, to destroy uh, the Jewish uh, people's plans of rebuilding the walls, uh, he couldn't work at them from the outside. You remember that? Uh, the, through Sanballat and Tobias, they basically had come to him and said, hey, uh, we're going to attack you guys. We're going to kill you. We're going to sneak in amongst you, and we're going to destroy you. And because that didn't deter them from rebuilding the walls, Satan then turned his attention towards causing a, 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 a problem amongst the Jewish people as they worked on the walls together. And the fact is, is so Satan, he tries to discourage believers. He tries to deceive believers. And we know this is true, that Satan would love to divide believers. When Satan is unsuccessful in his attempts from the outside... Satan normally moves his attention where? To the inside. And uh, that is exactly what we see happens in Nehemiah chapter 5. Warren Wearsby's made this statement in, about Nehemiah chapter 5. Very good statement. He said, when the enemy fails in his attacks from the outside, he then begins to attack from within. And one of his favorite weapons is selfishness. Selfishness. I think that's true. You look in the biblical history, look at what happened with the first family. You remember Cain and Abel? What happened? It all happened from selfishness because why? Abel had offered up a, more, a better sacrifice it, and Cain got what? Jealous, selfish about his brother's sacrifice and he ended up killing him. If you look at what happened in the early church, if you read through the book of Acts, you come to the fact, uh, one of the very first disputes that they had in the church was what? When they began to distribute the money out, the help, the food, and it was the, uh, basically the Hellenistic Jews, the Greek-speaking Jews said, hey, you're overlooking our widows and the uh, handing out of, of, the, of the help. You remember that? And there was literally a divide where what would happen is that the Greek-speaking Jews and the Hebrew-speaking you know, Jews, there was a split. There was a division. And what ended up happening is they tried to get to the bottom of it, and they helped them out. And they said, how about, how about this? We're going to elect some people that will take care of the problem in the church, and we're going to pick the Hellenistic Jews to be the ones that will distribute the help. So Satan, we know it's very obvious that he loves to work extra hard at causing division inside the lives of God's people. 
Why is it that he does that? Because when a, a, a group of God's people, they begin to divide and they begin to work against each other, their attention begins to be diverted where? Towards the inside as opposed to the outside, the mission that God's given them. Well, in Nehemiah chapter 5, there's a conflict that occurs between uh, God's people. Um, it's very obvious that many years the Jews had been gradually returning back to Jerusalem. They began to gather back into Jerusalem to rebuild the walls. But here was the problem. They had an economic problem that was going on inside their country. After the walls had been destroyed, they never really bounced back uh, because the Babylonians had destroyed their walls back in 606 B.C. And all their business, all their trade began to plateau. And uh, it ended up disrupting their living conditions. The living conditions in Jerusalem had gotten really bad. And here's what happens is that Nehemiah was going to be faced with a task of when God's people began to have all of these problems happening at the same time. Nehemiah had to find a way to reunite the people that were going through hardship. I personally believe that one of the greatest obstacles a church faces is not always, not always necessarily the enemy without, but many times it can happen because of the enemy within. Bible talks about the wheat and, and tares, you know, that I've been sowed in among the wheat. That happens, right? You ever think that there's people that come into a ministry to do it harm? Absolutely. Satan loves to use things like that. And see, what was happening among the Jewish people is that they ended up having all of these people returning back to the city of Jerusalem on all of these different returns. And here's the situation that they were facing in Jerusalem is that all these people are coming back into Jerusalem and they don't have enough food to keep up with the growth in their population. The demands went up on food and the thing was is that they didn't have enough in their agriculture and what they were planning to be able to sustain everything that was going on. So there was gonna be a huge financial problem that was gonna occur in Jerusalem. And in the middle of all of that, you know that in those times, there's people that usually get taken advantage of. You recognize that? Anytime that there's a, a big problem in the economy with finances, there's going to be people that have money that take advantage of what? Those that don't. And what was happening in Jerusalem is that there was this big rift that was happening because of all the pressures that were going on. First of all, they had the pressures from the outside. The enemy had already threatened that they were going to take their lives. Then you had the internal problems of the financial crisis that was going on. Then on top of that, you have the food shortage. And then on top of that, then what happens is there's a rift that happens between God's people. Can you imagine being Nehemiah and facing all these obstacles at one time? It, you would begin as a leader to begin to say, you know, how can I even begin to fix all these problems that we're facing? What I want us to do is look at this passage because what could have potentially happened was this. There could have been a civil war that broke out if Nehemiah didn't solve the problem and get to the heart of it. Hey, you know one of the important things in leadership is that not just recognizing problems that happen, but knowing how to deal with it? Knowing the problem is only half the battle. Would you agree with that? It's not just knowing that a problem exists. It's then being able to critically process exactly what you can do to fix the situation. Nehemiah was a very godly leader. He noticed the, the potential of the, a disaster happening. And what Nehemiah did is he came up with a very godly solution to what was going on. And folks, listen, does criticism and problems happen everywhere? Yeah. Do they happen in families? They happen in the business world? Hey, learning how to handle problems amongst people. Listen, what's the number one people usually have problems with? Relational problems. You recognize that, right? In any ministry, the number one problem that happens in churches is not usually, you know, all the secondary things. It's primarily relational problems that happen. And one of the best things that you could learn how to do is this. How do you get into a crisis 
of relational problems and handle it in such a way that you can be able to unite people together to work together when there was problems that existed before. Don't you think that's a valuable thing to learn? Now let's look at what happens and let's look at the historical situation that was happening. Hang in there with me. I'm trying not to lose my voice tonight. All right, so listen. Okay, historical situation. You have to understand that uh, in this event, we see that there was complaints of the people and also a cause of the problem. The very first thing is that there was three complaints that were going on during that time. Three complaints that caused the wall. And I want you to notice this also. Nehemiah chapter 5, you'll notice that there is no rebuilding of the wall. Why? I told you that what happens when you have relational conflict and problem with other people, God's people, what happens? You turn your focus inside and you have to focus on the problem as opposed to the mission. Hey, do you ever think churches face that problem? You ever think churches face that problem? Listen, I, uh, I was just at KFC, okay? I went right after church, and uh, there was an older man right behind me. Not KFC, Wendy's. All right, I'm already messed up. All right, so uh, Wendy's, uh, the guy was right behind me, and we struck up a conversation, and I was like, you know, what do you do for a living? He said, I'm a pastor. And I was like, really? And I began to talk with him, strike up a conversation. Where do you pastor at? And he named me the name of the church. And I said, how long have you been there? He said, probably about 40 years. I was like, really? And so then it really got my interest, and I was like, well, you know, well, how are things going? He said, horrible. I was like, well, what do you mean? Tell me a little bit about it. He's like, well, you know, we, what happened when our church was is that, you know, I've been pastoring that place for a long time. There were some problems that broke out, and there ended up being a church split. And when the church split, and they ended up starting a brand new church at another location, and what happened is I lost the majority of my people. He said, what's happened since then? Uh, we're primarily an older congregation, and we begin to focus on the problems that were happening amongst us, and we haven't reached anybody. And he said, I'll be honest with you, I don't know how much longer our church is going to last. Does that break your heart? Hey, folks, do you think that learning how to handle problems amongst God's people is a big deal? The big deal, Nehemiah had some really, really godly wisdom on how to handle that. Let's look at this. So uh, complaint number one, look at verse one. And there was a great cry of the people and their wives against their brethren, the Jews. So this, is a, there, this complaint comes before Nehemiah. And, and there's a problem. Notice it's the people were crying out. There was a great cry. The wives against the brethren, the Jews. It was the Jews fighting who? The Jews. What's the problem with there? The enemy is where? On the outside. They already had their enemy that was threatening them from other places. And what they did is they began to turn their eyes uh, away from the outside of the walls. And now they were turning them inwards. You see that? It's their fellow Jews. Folks, it's not right for God's people to fight with each other. They're not the enemy. All right, now look at what happens here. So the people decide to go on a strike. Look at what happens. The very first complaint was this. There was large families that didn't have enough food to eat. Look at verse 2. For there were, for there were that said, we our sons and our daughters are many. Therefore, we take up corn for them that we may eat and live. Basically, they're saying this. We didn't have enough food to continue on. The second complaint was the problem, their property, they were having to mortgage their land to pay for the rising cost in living. Look at what he says in verse three. Some also were there that said, we have mortgaged our lands and vineyards and houses that we might buy corn because of the dearth, because of the famine. So what happens is, is that they didn't have enough money and to pay for everything. So what did they do? They mortgaged their homes in order to have some extra money to buy food. Because why? There was a famine going on. How, how stressful you think things were at that point? Have you noticed that when stress is high, when tensions are high and problems are abounding, you notice how much easier it is to get into fights with people? 
Come on, folks, right? Like with your spouse, like stress is high, things happen. All right. Now, uh, another one. The third complaint was this. They were borrowing money to pay their expenses, but they couldn't pay off their debt. Look at what it says in verses 4 and 5. There were also that said, we have borrowed money for the king's tribute that upon our lands and vineyards. And yet now our flesh is as flesh of our brethren and our children as their children. And lo, we bring into bondage our sons and our daughters to be servants. And some of our daughters are brought unto bondage already. Neither is it in our power to redeem them for the other men have our lands and our vineyards. So what are they saying? In their day, when you had a debt that you couldn't pay, there was something you could do. You could take your children and you could actually sell them to the one that you owed money to, and they would work to pay off the debt. And basically what they're saying is this, we're, we're giving our children over to them and they're going to pay off our debt, but we can't buy them back. We can't redeem them. Why? Because we've already mortgaged our homes. We've already used that money that we had to buy food. And now we have no way of being able to pay back this debt. You imagine the frustration that they had? They're basically saying this, uh, we're in captivity. And what's the frustration that's going on with that? Folks, they had just left Babylon, you remember, uh, Persia, and they had just come back into the land. And so they're saying this, we're right back in the place where we started. We, we were already in captivity before, and now we're in captivity all over again. What did he mean by that? The thing is, is we're in captivity to our debt. We're basically slaves to these people that own our debt. Hey, did you recognize that when you get into financial situations like that, you've basically become a slave to your debt? You know, I don't think we talk enough about those kind of things. But there's a stress that comes with that. And basically what's going on with Nehemiah in this whole passage is that Nehemiah is saying that, hey, we become slaves all over again. And we don't want to live this way. And that's the complaint of the people. Help us. They're crying out for help. Free us from our debts. And now look at what happens, the causes of the problem. And let's go through them. There's three of them. The first one is because there was a famine. If you look back at verse 3, notice it says there was a dearth. I told you that the problem stemmed from this. Uh, the problem was is that as the people came back into Jerusalem, all of these people had been working in that area of Jerusalem. In last, last week's chapter, we found that the people, some of them had been outside the walls. Do you remember that? And remember they had been hearing from the enemy that they were going to be attacked? Well, what Nehemiah did was he assembled them to come back into Jerusalem in order for all of them to be within the safety of the walls. Okay, here's the problem. When everybody assembles back to within the walls, there was no way that they had enough food and crops to sustain the increase in the population. There was immediately a problem because there was the demand for food went up and listen, the output of the crops and everything else wasn't enough to sustain the population. So there's this huge problem. This demand goes up. The people had moved when and they didn't have enough crops to sustain it. There's this famine that goes on. That's the first problem. Now notice the second problem. The king, King Artaxerxes, his taxes were heavy. Man, don't you hate taxes? Man, nobody even said amen one time. Man, I'll tell you what. All right, but here's the thing is that what happened was is that I told you to do that. They had to mortgage their homes in order to pay their expenses. Look at what happens in verse 4. There was also that said that we have borrowed money for what? For what? The king's tribute. And that upon our lands and our vineyards. King Artaxerxes, he lived in the city of Susa, which, listen, folks, over 800 miles away. And here's this king. He allows them to return back to their lands, but the, here's the situation that they faced. 800 miles away didn't mean that they had complete freedom. He was taking the taxes and he was putting it into his treasury, and the people are saying, we don't have enough money to be able to pay the tax that the king demands on us. And they recognized that they didn't have the people, the army, to be able to fight back. Okay, so do you see how the problems, what are they doing? They're piling up, piling up. You ever notice that problems, that they come in waves? 
You ever notice how it's like, it's never just like one thing. It's like multiple things at one time, right? That's how the real world works. And so here's the thing is that he's saying, okay, these problems are mounting and it's looking impossible. Now notice the third one. There was a high and inappropriate interest rates that were being charged. Look at verse five. Yet now our flesh is as the flesh of our brethren, our children as their children, and lo, we bring into bondage our sons and daughters to be servants, and some of our daughters are brought unto bondage already. Neither is it in our power to redeem them, for other men have our lands and our vineyards. Basically what they're saying is this. The people that we borrowed money from have charged us such a high rate that we could never pay back our debts. We have no way to pay it off. And folks, listen, is there anything that's more frustrating or anything that causes more pressure than financial pressure? The people are looking to Nehemiah, their leader, and they're saying, Nehemiah, here's our problems. One, two, three, and they're just listing them off. And as the leader of this group of people, what do you think Nehemiah was feeling like? The problems are growing, they're increasing. What are we gonna do to fix them? Now this is where it gets really interesting. Nehemiah is going to open up the screen and let you see behind the scenes of what he felt. Folks, this is a very valuable section where you get to see behind the scenes of how Nehemiah responded. Hey, you wanna know one of the great things about leadership? Listen to this part. The great way to lead people is to, first of all, learn how to lead yourself well. Can I say that one more time? If you want to lead people well, you have to, first of all, learn the principle of leading yourself well. If you can't lead yourself well, you'll really have a very difficult problem leading other people. Now, <laughs> that's so valuable. Nehemiah gives us his emotions. Look at what he happens. The very first thing is his anger, his anger. Now, this is gonna get very interesting, so stay with me. My voice sounds horrible, and it's gonna be really hard to inflect my voice, so stay with me. All right, so his anger. Look at what he says in verse six. And I love he puts this in here, by the way. And I was very angry when I heard their cry and these words. You know what that word angry means? It means uh, to burn within, to seethe, to be incensed, to be fuming. Listen, you could see, if you would have looked at Nehemiah, his face would have turned bloodshot red. You would have seen that vein poke out on his forehead. I mean, he was ticked. He was angry. And you're like, is it wrong to be angry? You know, there's some people that think if you just get angry that that's wrong. Folks, it's not wrong to be angry. It depends on what you're wrong about. The Bible does say, be angry and sin not. Did Jesus get angry? <laughs> yes, he did. As a matter of fact, it's good for us to be reminded of things like that. Because Jesus, you remember when he went into the temple? You know, some people, you meet them and they think Jesus is this soft, loving, he's always giving everybody hugs. And he was kind and compassionate, but listen, folks, he also got angry. He went into the temple and he saw the money changers taking advantage of people and turning God's house, he said, which was meant to be a house of prayer. They turned it into a marketplace. And the Bible says that Jesus took a cord and he fashioned it into a whip. Hey, uh, a grown man going into a temple where everybody's buying and selling and, and they're doing all of this business. Jesus takes a whip out, I would love to see that, flips the tables over and begins to drive people out. Man, that would be a great video to watch. But listen, folks, he was angry, but he didn't sin because it was a holy anger. Listen, folks, there is a, a time when believers ought to be angry. As a matter of fact, I think there's sometimes where we see things that happen, we're not angry enough. And, you know, we see things that are done that, that you know, he was basically saying, you're taking my father's house and you're turning it into a den of thieves. 
You're taking advantage. And listen, he was angry because they were taking something that was holy that belonged to God and turned it into something else. And then he also got angry because he knew that the people that were coming there to offer up sacrifice, they were being taken advantage of. And when they would exchange the money, they were giving them these high rates and they were ripping people off. Listen, you think God wants his people ripped off? And when Jesus got angry, it was a holy anger. Nehemiah, when he gets angry in this passage, you want to know why? It wasn't because people were complaining. There's some complaints that are valid, right? He hears that these people are charging these high interest rates and they're fellow Jews. And Nehemiah's like, hold on a second. This isn't right. And so he, he, he pauses, and here's the reason why. You're like, Ryan, why did he have a reason to be angry? Well, the Jewish people, God had given them laws that they were to follow. And one of the things that upset Nehemiah is that they had very specific regulations on the people, and the regulations and the laws were meant not to be a burden to them, but also to, to differentiate them from other people. That as they followed God's law, that it would separate them and make them distinct from other people groups. Okay, for instance, look at uh, Exodus chapter 22, verse 25. Let's look at what this passage says. If thou lend money to any of my people that is poor by thee, thou shalt not be to him a usurer, neither shalt thou be lay upon him usury. What does that mean? Well, he's basically telling them that if you see any of your PR people, any of the Jewish people, that they're poor, he says, don't be a creditor to them. Don't take advantage of charging them money when you lend them. Uh, don't, don't charge them extra interest on top of the money that they're borrowing from you. God told them not to do it. Why? Don't take advantage of them because they're poor. You're God's people. He's the one that provides for you. Listen, when you see other believers get taken advantage of by other believers, you have a right to be upset. Nobody's, okay. When you see believers taking advantage of other believers, you have a right to be upset. It's true. Now, notice what else. We, if you look in other parts of uh, Jews were not to charge interest on other Jews because it made them distinct. It made them stand out from other people. Uh, he's basically, don't take advantage of them. Deuteronomy 23, 19 and 20 says this. Thou shalt not lend upon usury to thy brother, usury of money, usury of victuals, usury of anything that is lent upon usury. Unto a stranger thou mayest lend a, you, upon usury, but unto thy brother thou shalt not lend upon usury, that the Lord thy God may do what? That he may bless you in all that you set your hand to in the land, whither thou goest and to possess. What's he saying? When you have your fellow countrymen, other Jewish people that are struggling, don't take advantage of them and charge them interest. You know why? Why should you not do that? Because God will see what you do and how you took care of them, and God will take care of you. He'll bless you. Why? Because you're taking care of your testimony in front of other people's. And he's saying, I'm the one that provides for you. You treat people right. Listen, that is a great word for believers today. You don't think that God sees when you take advantage of other people? He says, you're not to live that way. Now, they were allowed to lend it out to, not, uh, to Gentiles and charge interest. They weren't a part of God's people. They were allowed to do that. They just couldn't do that. Now, I want you to notice another thing. In Leviticus chapter 25, I want you to notice that what it, the law said about treating slaves or workers. Leviticus 25 verse 39, it says this. And if thy brother that dwelleth by thee be waxen poor and be sold unto you, thou shalt not compel him to serve as a bondservant. You might write the word slave. But as a hired servant and as a sojourner, he shall be with you and shall serve you until the year of Jubilee. What's he saying? Well, when another Jewish person couldn't pay off their debt, what he's telling them to do is this. Don't treat them like a slave. You're like, well, Ryan, what's the difference? Well, a slave wouldn't be paid for their work. 
A slave was nothing more than a tool. In their day, if, if, if you were a slave, then they could kill you. They could treat you like you were a tool. Jesus said if, or not, God was telling them this. Hey, if you guys, uh, if you have somebody that's so poor and they have to be sold into slavery, then I want you not to treat them like they're a slave. I want you to treat them like they're an employee. I want you to be good to them. Because why? They're your brethren. And listen, when the year of Jubilee comes along, you should release them from that and allow them to go free. Listen, it should uh, upset us. What Nehemiah was upset with it was this, folks. The people knew God's word, but they refused to obey what they knew. One more time. Nehemiah was angry because the people knew what God required of them, but they refused to obey. Hey, folks, I'm just going to be really, really direct. One of the most frustrating things for us as believers is that when we know people know the right thing to do, but they refuse to do it. They know what God says. They know what he's called them to do. They just say, not doing it. It happens all the time. I can just think just this past week, I was dealing with a man. They were having an issue. And I said, have you prayed about that? Meaning, pastor talk, um, don't think that's God's will. Is that in the scripture? And you know what he told me? No. Have you prayed about it? No. You know what? It was a direct contradiction of everything God's word teaches. And yet he knew it and chose to do what? Nothing about it. I'm not going to concern myself with it. Folks, listen, Nehemiah looked at God's people and he said, listen, God brought you out of Persia. He set you free. He brought you into this land. You knew the right way to treat your brethren and you chose not to do it. It's wrong. It's wrong. It's wrong. And it made him angry. And listen, folks, God's people should be upset when his word isn't followed. And I don't mean it in a legalistic way. We're not like looking for people and banging them over the head with our Bible. But what I mean is this, we ought to have that sense that we want to listen to God's word and we want to obey everything that it teaches. Because that was the thing that made them distinct. Listen, when we lose our testimony and we begin to act like the world, you know what? We've lost the thing that makes us distinct. When we begin to live like the world, we lose what makes us distinct. Listen, when you become like the world, you have nothing to offer them. That's one of my biggest uh, scares in the church today is that you look at churches and so many times we become so much like the world and we try to be like them in order to entice them to come in. And what ends up happening is this, folks. You've become so much like them that you have zero to offer them. There's nothing different. You're the same thing as what they are. Now, I want you to notice what happened. So first of all, I told you he got angry. <coughs> I want you to notice the second thing. This is the, the part that you don't want to hear. Okay, he got angry. Y'all like that part. Now I want you to notice the next part. Verse 7. Then I consulted with myself. What does that mean? He got angry. He kept himself under control. He took time to think through what he was going to say before he said it. You're like, what do you mean? He didn't react and respond immediately. He actually like prayed about it and took some time to consider what God would have him to do with that situation. And he, he prayed through it. He thought through it before he spoke. Listen, we love to reverse that and speak first and then we'll pray about it. Hey, God, would you help clean this up? You know, I know I said that. And the thing is, is that that's, the Bible says that we're to be angry and sin not. The solution is this. He took time to think through what he was going to do about the situation. He heard all these problems, boom, 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 boom. And then uh, he got angry about it. He gave himself time to think and begin to consider about how he was going to approach the problem and how he was going to deal with it. Do you know Thomas Jefferson? Uh, he wrote in his Decalogue of how to live. This is what he said. It's one of his principles. He said, when angry, count to 10. He said, when very angry, count to 100. 
Mark Twain changed it a little bit. He said, when you're angry, count to four. When you're very angry, swear. Probably not great advice, though. All right, so um, what I appreciate about Nehemiah, folks, listen. When you get angry and you get upset about what's going on, one of the worst decisions you can make is choose to react off the cuff and just say what you think. So many times in situations that we could actually fix, instead of taking water and throwing it on the fire, we take gasoline and throw it to it. Nehemiah took time to ponder, to think about the situation, to run it through his mind, and I'm sure he probably prayed about it like he did all all the other times, but listen, he took the time to think it out about what he would do with the situation. Now, let me show you uh, now this very important aspect. How do you deal with the problem? Okay, we've looked at the problems that mounted, and then we looked at how Nehemiah responded. Now let's look at this situation and how do you fix it? Very powerful principles. He, first of all, he accused the ones that were guilty of stepping out of God's guidelines. There's accusations. Look at what he says in verse 7. Very good words. And I rebuked the nobles and the rulers And said unto them, you exact usury, every one of his brother, and I set a great assembly against them. Now, wow. You see what Nehemiah did? What did he do? You know, some leaders, you know how they approach problems? Sweep it under the rug. We'll deal with it later. Some people act like it's not there. Nehemiah, what did he do in this passage? He went directly at it head on. That's great leadership. Don't turn a blind eye to it. You don't have to overreact either. Head directly at it. He says that he rebuked them. Notice who it was that he was rebuking. You think it would have been easy to go after the nobles and the rulers? What does he mean by that? These are the rich people. These are the ones with position and power. These are the ones that were causing the problem and stirring everything up. The ones taking advantage of others. He went directly at them. Isn't that interesting that he went directly at the source? He didn't spew, he didn't call a whole city gathering and begin to fume at everything that was going on within the city. He went directly to the people he had a problem with. By the way, that's biblical. When you have a problem and you have people that are the ones that have done the wrong, what do you do? Go to them. Listen, folks, when you have problems and issues with people, God calls you to go to them privately, and to deal with the matter with them individually. You know how many problems would be fixed in our churches if we just followed that one thing? I can remember uh, playing baseball at college. One of the things that drove me nuts, I absolutely hated it. Like when one of our players committed an error, which happened like every game, okay, uh, was basically this. The coach would make us run laps for that one person that made the mistake. And I'm like, you know, are you kidding me? Like, they're the one that made the mistake. Why didn't you go to them? Now, here's the thing. When Nehemiah found the problem that was going on, he went directly at the people that were causing it. God led Nehemiah to do, to go to the people that were responsible, to do, that have done something wrong, and he went directly to them, and this is what he did. Now, folks, this is incredible. Did Nehemiah know what the problem that was going on? Did he know what it was? Yes, people had already told him. Now, when he goes to them and he confronts them, listen, folks, this is the hardest thing to do. Be open, be honest, be direct about what the problem is. Nothing can be fixed unless you directly attack it head on. Notice what he does. Verse 7, you exact usury every one of his brother. You know what he's saying? You're charging interest to fellow Jews. That's against God's word. He spoke it word for word. The second thing is that you're allowing the sales of Jewish people to permanent slavery. Look at what he says in verse 8. And I said unto them, we after our ability have redeemed our brethren the Jews, which were sold unto the heathen. He's saying we brought back those that were captives in Persia. 
And will you even sell your brethren, and shall they be sold unto us? And then they held their peace and found nothing to answer. Look at that. He said, you're selling them into slavery. Isn't that what the heathen used to do? You're acting like the world. Hey, folks, was he beating around the bush? Very direct. The third thing is this. You're losing what makes us distinct. Verse 9. And I, I said, it is not good that you do, you do. Ought you not to walk like what? In the fear of God because of the reproach of the heathen, our enemies? You don't think that God sees what you're doing? Do you guys not fear God and the fact that he sees you're taking advantage of his people? It's a great question. You know why he's attacking it is because it stopped the rebuilding of the walls. And folks, listen. All of the book of Nehemiah chapter 5. Nehemiah chapter 5, there's no building on the walls. Why? Internal strife. Listen, when we fight against each other, who wins? The enemy wins. There is no winning when we're fighting against each other and not focused on the mission. The mission for the people in Nehemiah is what? Rebuild the walls. And when you're fighting with each other, you can't rebuild. Hey, folks, that's the same thing that happens in churches. When you fight with each other, it is impossible to keep your eye focused on the mission of reaching people with the gospel. One of the things that I love is that Nehemiah just confronts it. Look at verse 8. It says, then they held their peace and found nothing to answer. Hey, folks, when you confront people, you know what happens? It allows room for God to be able to work, to be able to fix it. You know the best response that they could possibly have was to just be quiet and allow the Holy Spirit to convict you know that happens throughout scripture. One of my favorite passages is when Nathan is told by God to go and confront David. You remember what happened in the story? Nathan walks into the King David and he says, let me tell you a story about this man. He was poor and all he had was one ewe lamb. That's all he owned. He kept it in his house. He tended to it. He took care of it. And then there was this rich man that had all kinds of lambs. He came in and he took it from him. He stole it from him and took it. And David got angry and he said to Nathan, he said, Nathan, who is that man? I'm going to make sure he dies today. And Nathan looks at him and what does he tell him? That man is you. And David was what? Silent. Folks, great leadership recognizes the problem and it learns how to deal with it. You want to know one of the things that I've had to learn in ministry is that sometimes God calls you to do the things that are really difficult. It's the having a private meeting with somebody that you know you need to say something to. Is it fun? Do you feel like doing it? Never. But it's the thing that you have to do in order to deal with the situation. God calls you to do it. Do the right thing and go to him. Hey, folks, if you're waiting for it to get easy, it doesn't ever get easy. God doesn't call you to do the thing that's easy. He calls you to do the thing that's right. Now, notice the corrections, and I love this part. Because any good leader knows that just calling people out and them feeling bad about it and being convicted about it isn't enough. You have to take actions to make sure that what they decide upon is actually going to be followed through with. Now, notice what Nehemiah does. He doesn't just call them to respond and fix it and, and to admit that they were wrong, but they took actions to fix what was happening. So the corrections was this. First thing is he made them make a commitment to determine to stop the wrong. Stop doing what's wrong. Verse 10 is this is what he says. I likewise and my brethren and my servants might exact of them money and corn. I pray you, let us leave off this, what? Usury. What does he mean? Take off the interest. 
He says, from now on, when you see your brethren and they're in need, stop charging interest. Stop it now. Stop. That's the first step. The second thing that he does is he makes specific plans to correct the wrong. Listen, folks, immediately, look at what he says in verse 11. Restore, I pray you to them, even this day. When? Today. When? Today. Restore it, I pray to you, even this day, their lands, their vineyards, their olive gardens, their houses, their hundredth part of their money, the corn, the wine, the oil, you exacted them. Nehemiah told them to do what? Respond immediately, fix it now. Listen, it's not enough for you to just feel sorry about what you've done. You took advantage of them, you stole their houses, you stole their land, you stole their food. And Nehemiah comes in and says, it's not just good enough for you to feel bad about it and say, guys, I'm sorry. Nehemiah is telling them, make restitution. Take what you've taken from them and give it back to them. Make sure that it's right. It's great that you're under conviction, but listen, sorry is not good enough. You go back and you make it right. That's what Nehemiah said. There's times where you need to do more than just say, I'm sorry, and acknowledge you're wrong. Right? You remember what happened with Zacchaeus? He came to faith in Christ, and what did he do? On his own, he took the money that he had taken from people, and what did he do? He took it and he gave it back, and he gave up back even a little bit more. You know why? He was making restitution for the wrong that he had done. Now, that doesn't save you. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about when you've done something wrong to somebody and you've taken something from them. Make restitution. Make it right. And Nehemiah called him to it. Now, this is what I love about it because Nehemiah was a great leader. Look at what he did. He didn't didn't have him sit on it. He says, act now. Do it now. Don't wait. Now, here's the next part. Look at this. Declare your plans for correction and a promise to God. Now, this is what I love about this passage. Nehemiah, when they said, we're wrong, we shouldn't have taken that money from him. You know what he did? He sent a messenger down to the priest and he brought him back. And you know what he made him do? He made the nobles and these people in position, the elders, you know what he made them do? Stand up and make a promise to the priest. Look at what he does in verse 12. He says, then said they, we will restore to them and we will require nothing of them. So we will we do as thou sayest. Look at what he said. Then I called the priests. And I took an oath of them that they should do according to this promise. So they call the priest in, they come and show up and he has the nobles and these men line up and they begin to make a promise to the priest. Why would they do that? The priests were the ones that represented the people to God. And by them stating this in front of everybody publicly, what were they saying? Hold us accountable to the decision that we've made. You want to know one of the great things you can do in your Christian life? When you know that God's called you to make a decision, make a public decision so that people can hold you accountable to it. That's exactly what he was doing. Make this promise uh, out loud so people can see it, they can hear it, and they can hold you accountable. Now notice the last thing is this. Realize the seriousness of a vertical promise. Verse 13. Also I shook my lap and I said, so God shall shake out every man from his house and from his labor that performeth not this purpose, this promise, even thus be shaken out and emptied. What does Nehemiah mean? If you won't fulfill the promise that you made, may God deal with you. May God see it and may he be the one that deals with you. Let's look at these practical applications. Now look, uh, look at verse 13 real quick. And all the congregation said amen and praised the Lord, and the people did according to this promise. What did Nehemiah do? Listen, at the beginning, all these problems were listed. At the very end, what did the people do? They began to sing and praise songs to God. Why? Because now the people were united, and they were going to get back to the task. Listen, never, ever underestimate the power of having healthy confrontation with people. God forgive us for being sissies and sometimes not being able to confront problems head on. Because listen, it's the thing that's best when you see a situation, good leadership goes right after the problem and tries to do something about it. 
Now look at the applications and we'll be done. First of all, God's pleased with wise handling of our money. Don't put yourself in situations of becoming a slave to your debt. Use your money wisely. Next, prolonged personal sin takes a heavy toll on the public work of God. Listen, God calls you to deal with your sin because why? It will take you out of the work that God's called you to do. He called them to rebuild the wall and they had to refocus attention on dealing with the sin that was in their lives. Another thing, correct the, wall, the wrong in our lives begins with facing it head on. Go directly after it. And then lastly, correction is carried out most effectively when a promise is made. Folks, those are such important steps. Let me close with this story. Chuck Swindoll in his book wrote about a story of a a little town in St. Clair, just north of Pittsburgh, where they decided that they were going to build a red brick building uh, in their government, in their city square. It was going to be this building that was going to house both their fire department, the police department, and also their city hall. They were proud of it because they had gathered up the tax money from all the people in the city in order to build this, this government building. They had this big uh, ribbon-cutting ceremony. They were excited about this being built. All the people from the town, they showed up for it. But in less than two months, they noticed that there were cracks that began to form in the side of the building. The windows, after a while, they couldn't close the windows because the building had shifted and now the walls wouldn't, uh, the windows wouldn't close. Later, uh, another week later, the, the doors began to get to where they couldn't be closed. Before long, they noticed that the roof began to leak. And in a few months, it ended up being having to put up a sign on the building that it had to be condemned. The reason why, they did an analysis on the building and they found that deep underneath the surface, not far from that little town was, were these mines where they had began to dig tunnels underneath the ground. When they took the dynamite and they began to explode in those mines, they realized uh, that there was a stratum that led directly to that building that was sitting in the middle of their city hall. Those little explosions had caused the foundation to shift and brought these cracks uh, into the building so that the building began to be useless all because of stuff that was happening underneath the surface that they didn't see. Hey, folks, those little things that happen underneath the surface with people are issues that have to be dealt with. Sin will bring cracks into your foundation, and it'll cause your life not to function the way God intended it. Folks, we have to be careful of the issues that happen underneath the surface in our own lives that cause us not to work correctly. Listen, folks, don't let time go by on the things that God wants to deal with. Let's bow our heads and let's close our eyes. As the deacons in the back, if you'll come forward with the offering plates, we'll go ahead and receive this evening's offering as well. Lord, we come before you this evening and we recognize that there's so many issues and things that can happen. Lord, help us to recognize that we need to go after these things that happen. Help us not to be scared, but help us to know that we need to learn how to do the right thing, even when it's difficult. God, I pray that you would lead us in that way. Lord, I pray that you would provide for all.